on X. Get in the hunt, baby. Me and Andy go out. We go grouse hunting. And to be honest with you, I just follow the dog. So I'll be wandering through the woods and I'll get turned around. I'll be like, I want to get back to my truck. Well, with Onyx. So if you're like me, have that sucker on your phone. Onyx, get in the hunt and get back to your truck. Hashtag man's best kennel. It's Gunner Kennels, baby. It's a kit. We had Addison on the, the podcast, a phenomenal dude, always innovating our industry. And one of the things that he brought up is it's a kit. It's not just the kennel itself. You've got the fan 2.0 for your summer, right? Like it's hot out. We got to keep that dog cool. In wintertime, you got the all weather kit. Keeps that poor body temperature in there so the dog doesn't have to work as hard to stay warm. They also have the magnetic door accessory that keeps that body temperature in there. And then the straps. Everybody thinks like, oh, I'll just go to Home Depot and get the cheapo straps. Well, listen, they developed these straps so that basically you can lift a VW bug with the two straps. So if you were to get in a car accident on the way to the duck blind or the training grounds, that dog is going to be beyond strapped and stay safe. Check it out. Gunner Kennels, baby. Slide into the DMs. We'll hook you up. All right, it's DT Systems. Dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. Have you wondered if you want to force fetch your dog? Maybe you think your dog's too soft. Maybe you're too nervous to screw, quote unquote, screw your dog up. Let me help you. I built a start to finish course with different dogs, different breeds, and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy. Jump in. Links in the description. We'd be happy to help you. Let's go. Let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles, baby. Really excited to have a repeat guest, Nick Larson, back on the show. This was an OG, one of probably the first 30 episodes. I'm looking at Kevin for recognition. Maybe he can look it up quick, but it was early days of the podcast. Nick joined us so long ago that we got talking about his his quote-unquote new setter. It was a puppy back then, and now it's had three grouse seasons, so... Nick is from the Birdshot Podcast, Upland Gun Company. I mean, I, I was just going to say his normal Instagram, but it's N-I Larson, so my bad. Birdshot Podcast, Upland Gun Company, great, great grouse hunter. I loved talking grouse hunting with him and the woodsmanship behind it, but we also dabbled into the Upland Gun Company and fitting a gun and the importance of how it works through the woods and how it fits you and just like super knowledgeable guy, entertaining to listen to. And I, I know you're going to enjoy this show. So stay tuned. Nick Larson is coming on up. 
first, hit up the patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Link is in the bio. It's the community where you can get a little piece of the one-on-one with me. We have Zoom happy hours uh, where I answer your questions. We crack a beer together. We have a ton of fun. And right now, until September 1st, 2023, if you're a part of our Patreon community, you're entered to win a free hunt with Kevin and I in Southern Missouri to go duck hunting. We're also doing a seminar in the afternoons, probably some some bush lattes drink in the evenings with a bonfire. It's going to be a blast. All expenses paid, basically. We're working out the details of that, but but basically, <laughs> all expenses paid. Asterisk. Asterisk. I think we so. Ex- mostly, we're going to work on it. It's yeah on the podcast live. I'm telling you, it's it's going to be the lodging, the food, the yeah. beer, the hunt will be included. Your airfare or driving, probably not, but there's other cool stuff you'll get too. So, pounce all if that's a problem. Join Patreon, five <laughs> bucks a month. Win a free hunt. Let's go, baby. YouTube, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. Or excuse me, it's just Lone Duck Outfitters on YouTube. We are pumping out content on there for the for people to just train their dogs better. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. We're, we're working hard at it. Please subscribe and leave a comment. Tell us what you think about them. And if there's anything you'd like to see in the future, pop up on the old YouTubes. And lastly our force fetch course. I worked my tail off on delivering a start to finish force fetch course that takes different breeds, different personalities, and different stages of the process where they haven't done it. This is not a perfect specimen. This is where I work through problems. This is where I share with you the methodologies, the reasons why if this happens, this is what I do. If this happens, this is what I do. This is super common. Here's what you should do to fix it. It's me teaching you how to force fetch your dog. The link is in the description to the force fetch course. Go ahead and get you some. By the way, if you're a Patreon folk, you get a discount on the force fetch course. So I'm saving you money already, baby. Let's go. Next up, Purina. From the duck blind to the holding blind, it's Purina, baby. The food that fuels the truck alone duck. Our big dogs are on the 30-20 pro plan sport, and our little dogs, our puppies under a year old, are on the large breed puppy formula. I want to make sure that those young dogs are growing at the proper rate. I don't want them exploding and having huge, you know, growth spurts. Um, I just want them slow, smooth, smooth as fast and develop healthy bodies, healthy minds, and a healthy appetite for that Purina, baby. Next up, Gunner Kennels. Man's best kennel made in America. Made in America. What is that from Rocky? Well, this is going to be a new one. Apollo Creed. Let's go. Um, I don't know. I just lost my track of train of thought here with Apollo Creed, but Gunner Kennels made in America. It's cold up north where Kevin is in New York, and the new kennel panel for the door is basically what he's got it on his gunners in the bed of his truck. He's got a cap on it, so you're not getting the wind. You're not getting the precipitation from snow or sleet or rain. 
but it's still chilly back there. And so with the all weather kit, plus that door panel, the dog in the, in the bed of the truck is actually warm and their body. heat is keeping the kennel warmer as well as now they have to expend less energy to keep themselves warm. So it's a win, 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 win. Plus they're safe rolling down the road. Gunner Kennels, always innovating, always coming out with more. Check it out. Next up, Shooter Shoot, baby. That Kent cartridge. I got maybe a little sinus infection. I was just going to say. <laughs> Is that the sniffles or mm, bismuth, right? I don't know. Probably a little bit of both. Um, interesting conversation with Nick in terms of old guns and the type of ammo we can use with them, like the power behind the load. It's like bismuth is probably not going to hurt the barrels of the old guns, but it's more the compression of the shot. And so I'm being careful with that stuff. But in the old Browning Satori, the Kent three inch number fives, number sixes at the old Milardo Eduardo Milardo is a delightful treat to throw down range. Check them out at Kent cartridge on the Instagrams. Uh, last but not least is our friends at DT systems. These are the e-collars that we've been messing with over the last several months, testing them out and making sure that, you know, it meets the standards to be a part of the podcast and our training program and to deliver for you guys. And, you know, what can I say? We're really pleased with what we've seen. I'm also excited about what's coming down the pipes for DT. So one of the units that we've been using a lot lately is their 1820. And it's a great all around collar for training, for duck hunting, for upland hunting. It's got all the little things that you need. It's got a few extra bells and whistles for some people. I just think it's the simplest, easy to use. It's got great consistency and it's high quality. The 1820 from DT Systems is a solid, solid, solid unit. So check them out at DT Systems on the gram, baby. All right, let's get into the show. Nick, welcome back. We appreciate you joining us. Tell everybody a little bit about what's been going on in the life of Nick Larson. Well, as you can uh, see behind me here, we're getting some more snow here in Duluth, Minnesota, buddy. Uh, thanks for having me back on. I got nothing better to do in the midst of this blizzard we're having on March 21st. So it's uh, it's a pleasure to be back on, on the Lone Duck podcast and happy to be <laughs> chatting with you boys tonight. Yeah, I... I Saw in your background the snow, and the first thing I said is, boy, I don't miss that white stuff. <laughs> no, yes, thank yes. you. No, thank you. Um, one of my favorite things about you is is your intuitiveness about grouse hunting. And so before we get into it and, and dive into it, um, you've got the Birdshot podcast. You've got the Upland Gun Company. Tell us like the Birdshot podcast. What's been new with that? Tell us about the gun yeah. company. Let's kind of dive in, man. And then yeah, we'll those talk are, hunting. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Those are those are definitely the two things that that keep me most busy outside of my uh, my family. And I got two young boys now, and uh, and a lovely wife, and and two bird dogs, which we'll talk about a little bit probably more so than maybe the uh, the little rascals. But <laughs> uh, yeah, th those are 
those are those are what I'm doing mostly on a daily basis. And since we last spoke, the Birdshot podcast is new. It was sort of a it's a continuation of what I was doing for the Project Upland podcast, but um, really an opportunity came along to to work with Upland Gun Company, who was the the company was started by a friend of mine, Jerry Havel, owner of Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, and got to know Jerry over the years and. I uh, kind of put myself in a position to be able to help them out when they needed it not long after they launched. So um, that move kind of combined with the switching of the Project Upland and, and taking that um, solo as myself to and switching the name to the Birdshot podcast. But really, as longtime listeners of the show will know, um, not a lot changed behind the scenes. It was more of a uh, outward looking change just so I could take ownership of the show and, and take it with me. And now um, I'm in May, it will be two years since I officially joined Upland Gun Company, which is, uh, it's been, been a really fun, uh, time working with Upland Gun Company. And I, I guess I, I maybe could have predicted it, but probably not to the extent, but the synergy between Birdshot Podcast and Upland Gun Company, obviously Upland Hunting Podcast, we talk a lot about shotguns on the show, but just working for Upland Gun Company and talking to so many customers that listen to the show and clearly have an interest in in shotguns and and bird hunting it has it's uh it's been a really really unique experience thus far and we're, the way we see it we're we're kind of just getting started so um Dude, yeah, those awesome. two those two things are are a lot of fun for me yeah i i listened to a recent podcast you had and i don't remember your guest name so shame on me but was it the side by side question and answer episode no it was it oh. was a a um a great guest and he was like hey by the way i don't mean to give this plug like i'm about to but man you nailed it with the suggestions you nailed it with measurements you nailed it with the quality and i'm like i mean you're not paying him to say it he just was raving about the marksmanship that he saw from this gun and I don't know. It was a great podcast in and of itself. It was, it was that cool. was that was Randy Schultz, the quail hunter from from down he, south. Yes, yes, I recall that. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, it was it was a great episode. But I wanted to learn more about the gun company. Like, yeah. where are they from? If I like, I'm strongly considering getting one. Walk me through the process. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's definitely a fun part about what we do. It's pretty unique. I would say, I wouldn't say it's never been done before. Maybe specifically in the way that we do it with our website and the online builder. And there are tools and things that we can do today that could not be done 20, 30 years ago. So that's where we found um, our ability to to prop this business up and, and start making a lot of customers happy, which has been fun. But um, it starts with the guns, which are Italian made shotguns built by a company by the name of RFM. They've been in business since 1957. So over 60 years at this point, they've been making shotguns and they just never really had a strong uh, importing business to North America, a little bit to Canada, maybe here and there in the US, but not a lot. And Jerry and Dan were looking to do something sort of in this space that happened to align very well with what RFM does, which is specifically making these guns kind of one of one made to order customized in a way for the individual shooter that you just don't see a lot in in the shotgun world especially at the price ranges that that our guns are selling at so 
most people are familiar, you know, you go to go to a store with lots of guns on the rack and you eventually you pick and choose from lots of options and find what what suits you best. Yeah, but you clearly I'm, shoulder it and like stare into the sky and you're like, maybe look down the barrel. and You're like, yep, I'll take it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you're and you're, of course, comparing and contrasting to everything else, which people are doing that with our guns as well. But but we give you the options because they're made to order and because RFM is very receptive to making these sort of one by one and customizing all of the different options, barrel length grip, you know, we can get into all that stuff, choosing your mm-hmm. wood grade, custom engraving. I mean, you can really go crazy with it. I, I don't really pitch it as sort of like anything is possible. We, we have constraints and limitations that we work within, but I think um, relatively speaking, you have a lot of latitude to um, sort of tailor and tweak the gun to your, to suit your shooting style preferences, but also what you like to look at and and carry in the field. And, and that's really what we've heard over and over again from customers. That's what they appreciate about what we're doing. So. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm going to be a new customer. I'm going to tell you what I I have a Browning Satori. Wow. So I got a bunch of them, but my go-to gun that I do shoot the best is a Browning Satori with 26 inch barrels, uh, bent rib. It really helps my pattern. Um, it's from smashing <laughs> against rocks, duck hunting, <laughs> slipping on ice and falling and just, it's a rough shape, but man, helps I love on that. those grouse that are curving around a tree. I'm, I bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It kind of hooks a little left. Um, what gauge 12 gauge. It's all gauge. All right. So I hunt ducks, geese, pretty much everything with it. Then I was gifted a 16 gauge Ithaca side by side. Three barrel set. Three barrel set. I heard that on your Lars Jacob episode today. Dude, it, <laughs> Great it was, episode. Thank you. Um, love it. And so that's what I grouse and woodcock hunt with. That was a 16 gauge, right? Yep. Yeah. So I've got to get the RSTs for it. Um, would you suggest anything else? Like does bismuth work through that or should you stick with the low brass low? Um, it's yeah, it's gonna, I would, I would definitely not say like, yes, go ahead and shoot Uh, bismuth. It won't damage the barrels, but it's, it has more to do with the pressure in those old gauges based on my understanding. So you'd want to have, you know, like you'd need a Dell Whitman or somebody to take a look at that and tell you. Um, what you could what you could shoot through it. RST is always a great option, and it's a bummer because they haven't had the supply that they've had in previous years. And this ammo shortage has really hit them pretty hard, based on as far as I understand components and stuff. Um, and as I was talking to a guest recently, RST is a great. I wish they were at full capacity because they really specialize in a lot of different shot shell like skews that have varying payloads and velocities that you really don't find um in a lot of other places with with factory ammunition so they just they have a lot of great options and i would even though i shoot plenty of guns that don't need to shoot rst i would happily shoot that stuff just again knowing you can and you and lars talked about this a little bit you know you can shoot uh lighter payloads or slower velocity because you just don't need bigger faster stronger all the time when it comes to shotgun shooting sure which when he explained it that way yeah my God, like no one has explained it that way. Yeah, it was genius. So if you're wondering what he's talking about, we're not going to dissect it now. Go back and listen to the other episode. But um, it completely made sense to me on the wing. Um, so I, I love an over and under. 
I shoot grouse and woodcock with that side-by-side 16 gauge. And then I dabble taking an old A5 Browning, like old A5. Um, that's a 20 gauge. Yep. And I'll, I'll take that grouse hunting because it doesn't really get dirty where if you're duck hunting, it's such a pain in the butt to clean, right? It doesn't get used as much as I thought it would. So I would be looking for a side-by-side or an over and under. And so if I'm in between, what would you tell someone? Yeah. So the side-by-side and over under conversation is a very interesting one. You typically, I would say the majority of customers I talk to, um, have already decided whether they want to go side by side or over under. Um, and, and that's for varying reasons. I, I do get the question, you know, which way should I go? And I'm kind of considering it. I, I was going to tell you, like, after your conversation with Lars, how could you not get a side by side after the way he kind of painted it? And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you could definitely say I'm drinking the side by side Kool-Aid at this point. Like mm-hmm. when I was younger, I never really thought about side-by-sides much. I grew up hunting with pumps and I love browning guns. I had a browning uh, BPS 12 gauge. And then I always wanted, when I was younger, I always wanted a a BPS browning upland special. There was, because they made this gun with an upland special, it had a straight English grip. Like I would see that in the catalog on Sunday in the newspaper. And I was just like, it's an upland gun. I need that gun. And Mm -hmm. I never, I never did end up getting the BPS upland special, but my very first double gun, I still have it is a Satori upland special, which is, it's got the straight English grip. It's got a terribly short length of pull. Somebody chopped it way off. So I got like three inches of rubber on the thing to get it to 14 and a half inch (laughs) length, length of pull, but it has the straight grip. And of course it's got 24 inch barrels, which, uh, I shot, I shoot that gun pretty well, but now I, the guns that I shoot tend to look quite a bit different than that. Sure. Um, so to answer your question, I would say, you know, if you like shooting the side by side and, and you're, you're, it's not a big hurdle for you. You know, it's not your first side by side. You know, when somebody comes to me and they want to build a custom gun, if it's their first side by side, you know, we want to be sure that, that that's the road they want to go down. Right. Cause this isn't right. like necessarily buying and selling some other gun. So, uh, but if you're already comfortable with it and that's the way you're kind of leaning, I would, I would sort of double down on what Lars said and just, I mean, the way it sets up for the field, they tend to be lighter weight from the comparable gauge and, and, you know, configuration on the over under platform. And I do think there is, it's not, I don't think the performance is going to come down to like you missing the bird or not missing the bird. But I, I sort of buy into the theory that Lars is talking about from a completely instinctive wing shooting perspective, having your hands really close to the line of sight. Like, I just think it sets up really well for what we're doing in the, for upland game shooting on the wing, instinctive, quick shooting, especially rough grouse and woodcock hunting. Yeah. Um, I, I like the side-by-side for that application for sure. Okay. What about if I wanted it to double as my duck gun? Right. So in that case, there, there is a little bit of consideration there just because you're, you're considering um, maybe weight of the gun, maybe shooting some heavy, you know, duck hunting is interesting because you've got the non-toxic aspect and you're, as soon as you cross over to non-toxic, your ammunition options start to get a little bit different. And you tend to see stuff with heavier payloads. Not that it has to be, you could always custom load stuff, but you tend to see heavier payloads, uh, faster speeds, especially if you have to shoot steel or something like that, um, which our guns are plenty capable of doing. But then the weight 
conversation comes into play because, you know, if you are going to be pushing some waterfall loads through it, how light of a gun do you really want? And sort of what are you, what are you looking to get out of it? So because of the recoil. Yeah. Yeah. Really just felt recoil, which is, you know, it's felt recoil is you're going to feel it in the field a lot less than you would if you were shooting clays or shooting a patterning board. You know, we don't tend to feel a ton of recoil when we are shooting at birds, but that's not to say it isn't affecting you. And you guys will, you'll both know, like, you know, the minute you have a a gun that doesn't fire or you got a bad shell or something, which is pretty rare, but yeah, you you (laughs) see it. And so even if you are the guy, you know, you step up and say, I don't recoil doesn't affect me, put a blank in that guy's gun and see what happens when he pulls the trigger. Right. Yeah. He's flinching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so that would be interesting. So it makes sense. Um, lightness of the gun. So one of the things that I like about the Browning Satori is its balance. It's heavy. It's a heavy gun. Yeah. But it falls forward really easily. So when you shoulder it, it just like lopes into place and other guns, you if they're too light and I'm not used to it, like it usually takes me a little bit of practice to get back in the swing of things with my side by side because it is light. And I'm used to my Satori just like boop, 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 muscle memory. Would you, how how heavy is your Satori? It's, it's probably north of seven pounds in a 12. I guess. Yeah. I would think it's over seven pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, usually if we get in that conversation, my, my, we have two different models of side by side. We have the Venus and the Zeus. And the main differences between the two are they have a slightly different barrel construction. Functionally, that amount to a whole lot. But the Venus is a smaller, sleeker gun. The frame size is smaller. A 20 gauge frame on a Venus is smaller than a 20 gauge frame on a Zeus. Overall, you get a smaller, sleeker, lighter weight gun. So if you come to me and you say you, you're looking to for a duck gun, it's going to double as an upland gun and a duck gun. Mm-hmm. My mind is immediately going to go towards the Zeus just because it's a little heavier, more robust gun. Now, I'm still not talking about a heavy gun here. Uh, a, a 12 gauge Zeus is going to be under seven pounds. Uh, I think I've got one here in the garage that's like six pounds, maybe 15 ounces. Um, and that's set up, I think, pretty classically splinter foreign, straight grip. So sub seven pound gun. And then as you go down and gauge, you know, basically go down from there. 16 gauge yeah. is going to be six and a half to six and three quarters. 20 gauge Zeus is getting down towards six pounds. I've seen some under six pounds. Um, mm-hmm. So my mind would go to a 20 gauge Zeus or something like that. Yeah. And what I was going to ask you at the beginning was, and this is something that Lars brought up, which I find this a really interesting conversation is most of the time when people are buying a shotgun, I feel like one of the first things you decide on is gauge, which seems like a very natural starting point, kind of this fork in the road moment. But if, if folks heard the episode with Lars, it's like gauge is almost irrelevant. It has more to do with the the payload that you're planning to shoot through it because you can, as he clearly pointed out, I can have a 28 gauge and I could shoot a one ounce load out of it, which is effectively a 16 or a 12 gauge load. So what do you really have there? You have a 28 gauge or do you have a 16 gauge? Right. And and so it it would, it would come down to like, where do you want to be from a weight and feel perspective? And then we can kind of go from there because you can do a lot with ammunition within reason. Um, Sure. That doesn't really have to be a, a fork in the road for you. 
I think I would lean towards the 20 gauge because I think it would bode well for my grouse and woodcock. And then it would, it would be my dabble in the duck hunting. Um, I can't remember if I've ever shot a side-by-side duck hunting. Yeah. There's no way, no way, because you have nice side-by-sides and you are brutal on your guns. No, I have that old Stevens 12 gauge that was one of my first guns. And I think 311. Probably. I don't even know, man. I paid 50 bucks for it and it's a 12 gauge (laughs) side by side Stevens. And it, it, it was other. Yeah. It was my first shotgun. I got an 870 after that. Um, and so I think I duck hunted with that, but that was 15 or more years ago. I don't even know. Um, but long story short, yeah, I think I would go to, I think I'd go 20 gauge, man. I'd be, that's like the new fad, right? Like the smaller, the smaller it is, the bigger, you know, what is (laughs) right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The 20s, 20s, the new 12 and the the 28 is the new 10 gauge. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do think it's, it's, it's really hard to argue with the practicality of the 20 gauge, especially what you're talking about adding in some versatility, you know, maybe it's primarily an upland gun, but it's also maybe a really nice day duck gun. And I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't be too worried about taking it out on a rainy day either. You know, you just got to make sure these things are dry and clean. Um, well, and that's cool what thing, I love about, sorry to interrupt you, but that's what I love about okay. an over and under a side by side, man. It's three pieces. Whap, whap, strip whap. them down. Yeah. You're stripped out, dry them out, yep. clean them up, oil them up. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. It's pretty simple. And, and I will say that we are, as we, as Upland gun company gets more and more out in the world, we're starting to talk to more customers and we are um, right now we're building some, some guns for guys that are, it's going to be a duck gun. That's what they want. They want to shoot. They want to shoot a side by side double gun with ducks and being a modern gun with some modern manufacturing things that we can do, we can Cerakote the receiver. We can Cerakote the barrels. In fact, we just, I just took an order yesterday for a guy. It's it's his third gun. He's building a a Zeus, a Zeus 16 gauge that we talked about. We're doing Cerakote black on the action and the barrels. And we have this really cool uh, duck game scene engraving that we're putting on there for him. And um, he's, he's over the moon about it. So you have that, you have that capability and you can sort of dial it in and, and fine tune it the way you want it. But yeah, in a 20 gauge, you're going to have the ammunition options to take it from the duck line to the woodcock covers. And you can do that pretty seamlessly. One of the things that I found interesting in the episode that you had, and, and I wish I remind me of which episode that you, Rand, you Randy Schultz. It. Thank you. Randy Schultz. He was talking about getting shorter barrel length. And I always thought, Hey, I'm in the Woodcock woods and I'm in the thickest of thick tangles and alders. And, you know, you swing a gun. I want it to be shorter because it's less likely to snag on a vine, snag on a tree. I can pull up and, and pull the trigger. So what is your methodology on why you told him go longer? Yeah, it's a great question. It comes up all the time. And the short barrels thing is a very logical thing to go to in your mind. And 
myself included, you know, I hunt rough grouse 99% of the time. So I'm in, I'm in the grouse woods. And, you know, when I first got that Satori upland special with 24 inch barrels, I thought it was, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it's not that short barrels don't perform, but the more and more I've done this and the more and more I've got to shoot different guns. And now one of the perks is I get to experiment and play around and build some stuff. You just, I don't see that you have as very much to gain by shortening the barrels. And it has more to do it has more to do with the weight and the feel of the gun than it does anything else. These guns, and especially the gun that he bought, which was a Venus 28 gauge, that is a that's our smallest frame gun that we make. You're talking about a five and a quarter pound gun in mm-hmm. in a gun that has 28 or 30. I've got one over here on my bench that's got 30 inch barrels and it weighs five pounds, five ounces. So you take that gun and you start chopping off barrel length, that's when you risk getting the whippy or zero momentum uh, swing that people talk about with short barrels. And to kind of come full circle to the whole getting caught in the brush thing, I think while that makes sense in theory on paper, when you actually get into the woods, you don't, when you get hung up in the brush, you get hung up on your arms or your body. It's, you're just, you're either hung up in the brush or you're not. It's not because of the last two to three inches of barrel. That's not where you're swinging, making this big, long swing and doink, the last inch of my barrel runs into an oak tree and stops my swing. It's not That's just what that I tell that my fiance happens, too. It's, but it's not that it's not, uh, it's the, not last the length of the inches, barrel. Right? Yeah, it's not that. <laughs> I've heard that one before. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Can't be so, the first one. So the way we kind of frame that for a lot of folks is, especially if we're talking the, the Venus shotgun, the small lightweight one. I like 28 inch as a minimum, unless you are a very small stature person and are going to have a really short length of pull, um, then we can get into like the whole proportions and balance thing. But RFM is paying attention to the balance of every one of these guns during their hand fitting and finishing process. So whether you get 26 inch barrels or 30 inch barrels, it's going to have a pretty similar balance. They're paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I have, I've gone from, I went from kind of shooting mostly 28s to then 29. And last year when I got my 28 gauge, I put 30 on it. And I was honestly like nervous until the day I got it. And I took it out in the woods and started dropping birds with it. And it's just, it's not a, it's a non-issue. So I don't really push people to go way out of their comfort zone, but I just, I don't really see what there is to gain by going shorter than say 28 inches. Okay. So because I've got the three barrel set for the Ithaca, would you mm-hmm. tell me this year dabble with putting on the longer barrels and let it rip? Well, I was going to ask I, you, I yeah, what's the, I'm assuming the way they used to do those barrel sets, typically they would have, you know, the shorter barrels would be more open chokes and the longer barrels would be tighter. Do you know the specs on each set of barrels? Uh, not off the top of my head. I, I no. either have the paperwork for it or wonder if, but you know how you can like look in the barrel and kind of yeah. put an eyeball on it. They, oh, they um, might have mark. They might have markings on it or something too. Exactly. But, uh, so are or, you are you pretty much hunting with the twenty six inch barrels up to this point? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which again, I don't. I don't necessarily think in a, in a gun like that that you inherited. It's got twenty six inch barrels. They you know presumably they balance that at the factory and we're paying attention to it. There's really nothing wrong with shooting the 26 inch barrels if it's got the right balance and feel that you want, but you know, go ahead and and put the 28s on for a day. And I pretty much guarantee you're not going to have any incidents where those extra two inches, you know, muff the shot for you. 
Yeah, no doubt. I'll be the one muffing the shot. Exactly. It's yeah. like we either screw up or we're caught in the brush or or it's it's not it's usually not the barrels. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, I think I think I'm I mean, I'm I'm excited to maybe travel down this road and see if I can get myself into one of your guns because it's it's something I've always wanted to do. I would love to have an heirloom and I beat the heck out of the Satori enough that I've kind of understood that that gun that one's it, not going to be it. That's not going to be it. <laughs> that one's not. I might it. be able to look at it, but it's <laughs> it's rugged, man. I've shot the bluing off of it. Um, and Satori's it, they'll take that beating. I mean, they're they got a reputation. Yeah, I, I love it, but it. I think something like this would be. I have my great great grandfather's ten gauge Charles Daly Damascus barrel. I don't shoot it. It's there. I clean it once a year. I look at it. It's, and it'll be continued to, to be handed down. But man, that, like something like this, you know, that'll be what I can use and then let someone else use and let someone else use. So yeah. I think it's badass. And, and I, I would like to dive into that before I get too old. Yeah. Um, I got a question for you, Nick, you, yeah. uh, mentioned that you have two kids now do you have uh have you purchased guns on their behalf um i guess it depends on if my wife is asking or (laughs) (laughs) if if she's probably not listening so let it rip she's not listening it's fine no she's definitely not I, i mean i have some guns right now that i would I sort of envision them them hunting with at some point but i i would tell you that i don't probably have their first gun at this point um i i imagine that will be uh a 28 gauge at some point whether it's an over under or side by side is is to be determined my my young or my oldest will be five in april and the youngest is not yet two so we got a ways to go there but um, i haven't done anything yet and and really with with the guns that i've built through rfm i'm kind of in this early stage where again i get to have some fun and experiment with different builds. I haven't really, I haven't done the personalization that a lot of our customers do just because I'm, I might, you know, I might be hunting with a new gun next fall or, or I'm playing around with stuff at this point. At some point I'll probably, I'll probably cross that line and, and build something once I get it to where I know it's a, something that I want to keep for a long time. I, I will maybe consider putting a dog engraving on the bottom or putting my initials on it or something. You know, we can do that kind of fun stuff. And a lot of our customers do. Um, but at this point, I'm still kind of definitely playing around with different builds and configurations, even though I am like, if, if I pulled all my guns out and laid them on the table, they all look about the same. Cause I'm, I'm kind of a, like a plain vanilla guy. Everything's got a straight English grip and splinter four. And that's just, that's just the way that I kind of, I, it's hard to get me to step outside of what I like. Why do you like the straight English grip? It's, it started as nothing more than literally seeing it in a catalog and thinking, wow, that's cool. And that's different. And, oh, it has Upland attached to it. So that's where the fascination started. But once I got my first gun with it, I just, I just always got along well with it. And a lot of times you'll hear it's, it's sort of, it's good for double triggers because you've got the freedom of movement. That's a little bit debatable. You're not really sliding your hand like six inches back to get to the second trigger or anything. And my, my Satori has a, that's a straight grip, but it's a single trigger over under. 
Um, but I do like it for, I just think it's uh it sets up well for that quick instinctive shooting. It's, it's a, uh, you really don't want to be doing a whole lot. And this is another thing that Lars talked about on your podcast. When you're shooting wing shooting, you're driving the gun with your lead hand. So for me, that's my left hand. The left hand is grabbing the barrels, steering the gun. My eyes make contact with the bird and my, my left hand is, is putting the barrels on the bird. With the right hand, you really don't want to be doing a whole lot other than just using it as a support to lift that up and then eventually pulling the trigger. And I find that with that straight English grip, it kind of, I feel like it kind of influences uh, less activity with your right hand where you don't have this big full pistol grip that you're in control and steering the gun with, which he mm -hmm. talked about is kind of what uh, a clay shooter is looking for, a big full pistol re uh, grip to take the recoil out of it. And you're kind of, I don't know if you're driving the gun with it so much. I don't personally don't shoot a lot of sporting clays in that style, mm -hmm. but I think it's uh, I think it's a great grip for an upland bird gun. But if you, if you were to ask me my thoughts on like, which grip should I get for a field gun? I like the straight English grip or the round knob Prince of Wales grip, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Both of those are kind of a, they're an open, relaxed grip, which both lend themselves to what I was getting at where we're really shooting the gun with our lead hand and the right hand is just there to support the back end of the gun and pull the trigger. Cool. I think that's a great explanation. Um, I don't have a preference. Yeah. But I don't own a gun with the with the English grip. grip. Yeah. What do you with have the, on your Satori? Is that a full pistol round knob? What do you got there? I would I would consider it full pistol, I guess. Okay. Could be a I semi semi pistol where it's kind of relaxed, but yeah. I'm kind of a relaxed guy, so I'm gonna say it's relaxed, but I don't know <laughs> the answer, Nick, to yeah. be very honest with you. Um to be very honest, I just, I thought it was more straight or not straight. Yeah. Um, yep. Kevin, would you be able to help answer? I don't think it's, I think it's the relax. I think it's like the nub and then fans back would be how I would describe it. I mean, I it. don't know your gun as well as you do. I kill things with it. All I know is it shoots yeah. where I point and <laughs> it goes things, bang. things go fall and dog goes gets. Send me How a picture of it after after we record and I'll I'll give uh, you my assessment of it. But I, will. I I think this brings up an interesting point, and that is because we give people the choice on all of this stuff, like every every sort of line on the gun builder is an opportunity for like, well, why would I choose this or that? You know, so right. it kind of invites all of this like hyper analysis. And some of the things are just they don't have to be that complicated. It it can just be your personal preference, what looks best to you. There are some things that have functional differences and we, we do our best to sort of talk through that and how it might apply to you or not apply to you. But it's not everything needs to be super overcomplicated. And mm -hmm. with grip, I would say, um, you know, I do think if you're, if you're interested in side-by-sides and again, you don't have a strong aversion to trying something like that, I think trying a, a splinter foreign straight English grip, just because that's kind of the, the sort of the, in like the ultimate aesthetic that the English, the Brits designed with this gun, I think mm -hmm. it's worth trying and just to see how that, see how that fits and shoots for you. Um, it sets up very well for that specific purpose. And I think it was, there was a reason why they designed it that way. Yeah. I pretty much just want to shoot more grouse. So if you tell me <laughs> that, then <laughs> yeah. 
That's kind of my. They don't. They don't come with a guarantee that you will bag more grouse, but we, you sh- we like you to should. think that shooting <laughs> shooting a gun that that fits you and you enjoy carrying and you have confidence in that will help you shoot more grouse. Cool. Uh, that leads me to a quite uh, a question slash comment that you made or a comment that you made that lead me to a question. How do you? You're proficient, man. You in the woods are proficient at bagging game. What do you do to prepare yourself for going out into the woods in the fall to up your odds that you and your dog are doing all the work, you find the covers, you do all the work, and then when the opportunity presents itself, you're able to take the shot and bring down a grouse. What are you doing now so that ball hits? Yeah, Um, uh, that's a great question. And I would say, you know, there's a lot of things that sort of lead up to that and sort of you know, the, the end of the line being rough grouse down in the bag, you know, that's, that's certainly the that's pinnacle. That's a highly loaded of, question, basically there, <laughs> yeah, Uncle Bob. Yeah. It's yeah. not loaded. He said he doesn't do traditional sporting clays. Uh, right. All right. That's fair. That's a good point. So what's his secret? <laughs> well, I, I'd like to say that I'm kind of a product of my environment in that I live in, I live in Minnesota. I have access to lots of, lots of good grouse habitat, um, and I have time to do it. Um, and I've been doing it for a long time, you know, so right. since I was 10 years old or whatever, the 27 years of grouse hunting to varying degrees. You know, I once I got my driver's license, that's when I really, really started hunting, being able to do it on my own. But I didn't have bird dogs for a long time, which people may know if they've listened to my show. Um, I didn't. I've got my my first dog laying on the floor next to me here. He's going to be nine in June. So um, up until about 10, 11 years ago, I didn't hunt with dogs very much other than a time or two before that but um it's a uh, a lot of especially in the last last 10 years like just a lot of exploration and finding finding new covers like again i it's more about having a lot of places to go that i can be productive and in in having that um i have gotten more reps you know more repetitions more yeah. we flush more grouse i've got more chances to shoot at them um so all of that leads up to it i will say i i don't want to overlook i have seen a, a big increase in my proficiency based on the time and investment I've, I've put into shotguns and learning more about wing shooting and putting some of the things that we're talking about in the episode today into practice driving the gun with my lead hand now i i do go to the clays range not like I'm not shooting a thousand targets a year or anything like that but i try to get to the sporting clays range once a week, you know, two, three times a month, if I can in the summer, I'm just really not there to keep score per se, but I go with my buddies and, and I shoot and it's all of that, all of that helps. So practicing and becoming proficient with, with your gun is a huge part of that process. Um, and even to the point of, I, I never really put a lot of stock into this before I started doing it, but you'll read a lot, practice mounting your shotgun in the, in the garage or in the office. Mm-hmm. I do that. I do that quite a bit. Um, consistency, having a consistent gun mount so that in that split second, we have to actually shoot at a grouse, which, which if you do any grouse hunting, you'll know full well what, what that is like. Um, there's, there's not much room for error. So mm-hmm. there are some things you can do again with practice mounting and having a gun that fits you properly. That's a, that's one that we can definitely talk about. Um, I have gone down that route and I have seen the benefits of having a gun 
that properly fits me. Um, so that when I'm in the woods, it's not a lot of conscious thought going on. It's just the experience that I've got over the years and time after time of mounting the gun and pulling up and pulling the trigger. And I still miss plenty. Don't get me wrong, but I definitely have improved my, improved my wing shooting and I make my dogs happy every once in a while. So good for you. Can I, I have, so you've mentioned you, you have had gun fittings before. Yes. I don't know if it's like not cool to add. How much does that sort of a thing cost? Oh no. Yeah, totally. Uh, the typically we, and with Op and Gun Company, we work with a network of gun fitters now. Typically, you're going to pay anywhere from like three to $600 to go gotcha. do a tri-gun fitting. Um, and a tri-gun is a, a tri, you'll, you'll see some variation here. A tri-gun fitting is, which is what we recommend. That is a, a, a gun with a stock that is adjustable. So you go out to a, to a gun fitter. He's going to do all kinds of exercises, check your gun mount, look at your t technique. And every gun fitter has their own kind of style and method of doing things. Um, so I won't capture it all here, but they're checking for eye dominance issues and, and they're going through the basics. Right. But then they're going to have you start shooting at a, at a patterning plate. And they're really not trying to coach you too much through that shooting the patterning plate. What they want to see is you mounting the gun not thinking too much, not adjusting while you're in the gun, but mounting the gun and shooting the patterning plate. And you're looking at the orange dot on the plate. So it's Nick is looking at the orange dot. He mounts the gun and pretty quickly shoots. And then where does that pattern hit? Does the pattern lay right on top of the orange dot? If so, great. Let's take the dimensions off this stock because that gun is shooting where Nick is looking. That's ultimately what we're trying to get to. So if the, if the pattern more likely scenario, the pattern's not going to shoot right where you're looking at that point, the gun fitter then begins to move the stock around to affect and Del Whitman's fitter that we work with a lot. He's great at explaining this, but your eye is essentially the rear sight of a rifle and the stock is being moved around to move your right eye around in relation to the barrels and the rib to eventually get that pattern to hit right where you're looking which goes back to what we were talking about when you don't have a split second to consciously think about shooting a rough grouse. All you can do is look at the grouse, raise the gun and pull the trigger. We got to make sure to the best of our ability that with a good gun mount, that gun is shooting where you're looking, if that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. I also didn't know that that's how they did it. So great question, Kevin. Well, yeah. I didn't know that. And I guess I just always assumed that was like, to me, that sounds like a rich person thing. Like that's like, <laughs> that's like a $5,000 like, deal that. that I'll never it's, be able to. It's kind of foreign to a lot of do. people. Yeah. 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 I don't know. But at, cool, the, at, at the price that, that it, you know, it's not $5,000, it's three to $500. And depending on how, you know, how much time and or money you want to invest in it, it's definitely, I would say it's one of the best three to $500 you could, you could invest in whether you're taking your favorite gun there along with to figure out if that fits you or doesn't fit you, that's helpful. Or if you want to just totally start from scratch to potentially build a gun with help and gun company, where we can put custom stock dimensions on it, either, either one of those or both of them is a, is a reasonable um, way to go about a gun fitting. But just knowing that, knowing that your gun is not working against you. And that's, that's really what I realized. I now with the benefit of having done a couple of gun fittings, in hindsight, I know I have guns that do not fit me and I do not shoot very well. And I no longer have to bang my head against the wall wondering, 
mm-hmm. why like when I look at that bird and pull the trigger with my Fox Sterlingworth, does it not fall? And when I when I shoot it with one of my guns that fits me, um, it's more likely to fall. It doesn't always fall, but um, yeah, that, it, it can make a huge difference. And for me, it did. So uh, that's one question. And then I want to get into dogs and a little bit of grouse hunting and not yeah. take up all of your night. Um, I find it very difficult to go from Satori to the grouse woods to a Satori to the grouse woods. Um because I don't think the Ithaca fits me right. Yeah. I just, if the more I shoot it, the better I get with it because I probably adjust to the gun. Yep. So take that gun to a gun fitter and he will say like, Oh, put this much butt stock into it. And like, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know, but like, I'll walk you through. Let's say you go do a fitting with, with Del Whitman. So I've, I've seen him do, cause we do them for Alpha gun company. So I now have had the benefit. I've done a gun fitting with Del personally. And I've, I now shoot guns that are basically the prescription that he gave me. Um, and I've seen the results that way, but I've also seen a ton of other people get fit by Dell. And it's, you know, when I'm sort of standing back and get to sort of watch the process, yeah, you learn a lot that way too, but you go, you go fit with Dell. He's going to do all those things I talked about, check your eye dominance, check your mount, walk you through that plate fitting process. And we're starting from scratch. So he is using his tri gun and he's going to come up with, it doesn't matter what guns you have in the truck or what you've been shooting. He's going to come up with a set of stock dimensions that get you hitting the orange dot where you're looking, shooting the gun where you're looking. And then he can, once he gets there, then he will measure his trigun, measure the the dimensions, which would be drop at comb, drop at face, drop at heel, cast, uh, length of pull, the things that you may or may not be familiar with. We've got a video on gun mm-hmm. fitting with Del Whitman. You can go watch that um, cool. to kind of walk you through that. But once he has that a 3d map of the stock that he's got you fit for, then he can pull out your old faithful Ithaca gun, put it up on his little jig and measure it. And he'll then have the map of that stock. And then he can kind of look and compare those two and gunsmiths can alter guns to fit certain dimensions, but there are, it's not a, uh, automatic process that he can it he can't necessarily adjust every gun to fit you so in my case i brought a gun to dell that i thought i would go get a fitting with him he would he would bend the stock or adjust it or whatever and i'd be happily on my way in my case because of the dimensions that dell fit me for he he couldn't make the bends to fit me without like throwing one of the other dimensions out so there's limitations like around the gun that you currently have. And so just to, to kind of put that out there, like it's not, it's not a guarantee that a gun fitter will be able to adjust your gun to fit those dimensions, but in a lot of cases they can. And to your point, Bob, consistency, and I've found this from my personal experience is huge. There are some people that can just kind of pick up any old gun and basically figure it out. Um, whether it's a level of proficiency that they have, or just a, a, a level of adaptability, not everybody can do that. I don't really think I'm one of them just based on my experience in shooting guns that fit me different. So now the more that I have guns that are all kind of set up the same way, mm-hmm. I can switch between one or the one or the other a lot more seamlessly than I could before, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And that's where like that tried and true gun that just feels right and you find yourself being more consistent 
in knocking things down or yep. breaking the clays. It's like, it's, that's the gun. That's yep. the gun. And then I mean, anything what, else feels foreign to you. What I was going to say, one of the easiest ways to kind of, you kind of realize this, if you have, let's say you have two guns, one of them has a 14 inch length of pull, and maybe the other one has a 15 inch length of pull practice mount the 14 inch length of pull gun a bunch of times, and then go ahead and pick up the 15 inch one and, and raise it up and see if it gets caught under your armpit, which it very well could. And that's kind of like, it's kind of the light bulb moment for a lot of people that you sort of have this groove greased in your gun mount that is again, consistently doing it the same way every time that is beneficial for wing shooting. But if you start changing the variables by picking up a gun that has a totally different fit, you're going to throw off that gun mount that you have um, absolutely. To, some, to varying extents, right? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent agree. It, And then you throw in hunting jackets and vests yep. and yep. all the other crap, but, but I agree. Let's start with the best foot forward and then do your best to mitigate. But all right, dude, I loved that conversation. We just nerded out pretty hard on that. <laughs> but last time you're on the show, you had a setter puppy and you've now had two seasons under her belt. Talk to us about that dog, man. And, and favorite points, favorite moments where light bulbs went off. Like just give us the rundown on that experience, bringing up another dog into your family and into the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. It's, uh, so actually this, uh, this season was Rose's third season actually. So she oh, okay. will be, wow. so I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I talked to you guys the summer when she was just a tiny, teeny, tiny pup, um, right ahead of her first season. And that was three seasons ago now. Um, so she will be two years old. Wait, maybe she's going to be three. I'm getting this mixed up now. She's, I think she's going to be two. She's only going to be two. She's had three seasons. She was very young her first season. And that was the season when my older dog Hartley tore his ACL, like mm -hmm. right in September. So he was out the whole season and I just was, had a pup and we were lucky in that our, the conditions in the grouse woods that year held up for us well into December. So Rose got a lot of woods time her first year and we got her on a lot of birds and that was a pretty good year for grouse. The two seasons since then have been even better, I would say, around there. So nice. in her three in her three seasons, like I don't know that I could ask for more as far as like getting her on wild birds and getting her in the woods. So she's had a lot of bird contacts. And I'm just I mean, she's my second bird dog. So I try to keep everything in perspective, like it's a small sample size. Um, I know for me personally, like what I knew when I was bringing up dog number one compared to what I knew when I was bringing up dog, I was in like a completely different headspace. I was so much less stressed with dog number two, just mm -hmm. having been through it before. Um, I certainly knew a lot more about reading my dog. I had, I had learned a lot more about grouse hunting and was better at wing shooting. So there was all these things that, you know, you're a better hunter every day, every year. Um, so a lot of that plays into it. And I feel like mm -hmm. Rose has had, she's had a lot of opportunity for success in her first three years. And she has like met and exceeded all my expectations in that regard. And just like, I couldn't be happier with how she's progressing and knowing that she's only two years old. Like we've got, you know, if, if we're lucky, we got a lot of hunting ahead of ourselves and she's, uh, yeah. she's doing really, really good. So. That's awesome, man. Uh, what did you find were her strengths and what would you, her, her weaknesses in the field? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's like a job I would, interview, Bob. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. What's, I, your, I biggest, love what's your biggest weakness? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I'm always I'm, on time. Um, <laughs> I never don't want to work late. <laughs> I'm a people person. I'm good at dealing with people. <laughs> yeah, I love stress. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Rose has, I think she's got a, she is, she's like barely weighs 40 pounds. She's small. She's really light on her feet. She moves really, really well. Like I love her confirmation and I love her size too. Like she, in my eyes, like she does everything that Hartley, the male dog, he's 50 pounds. Um, and like, this will sound like I'm, I'm like favoring Rose. Like I just, it's just two different, two different dogs. And I'm just like, you know, it's sample size one sample size two, but she kind of does everything Hartley can do in a smaller package. And I just, I just love like her size and she seems to be so light on her feet. She covers ground effortlessly. Mm-hmm. So I, I love watching her run and she, she moves through the grouse woods fast, but in control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say both my dogs do that. And that's, that's very appealing to me. Um, you know, a, a swift, swift hunt through the woods, but in control, not crashing through cover, not banging around They're They're in control. Right. Um, and I stop you right there. Cause that yeah. is one thing that I love about my setter. Yep. She is, I wouldn't say she's swift. She's methodical, but she is almost silent in the woods where yeah. it's like, she's not bumping grouse from, breaking branches and crashing through things. She like is like a snake that just slithers through all the tough stuff. And she still works at a brisk pace and she's like getting it, but it's, it's silent. And then you hunt with other buddies, dogs or Kevin's dog. And it's like, I knew (laughs) no, like five minutes ago, I could see the the (laughs) The wheels turning and I knew I'm like, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Look, Throw on, Kevin's on, dog out of the bus. You're hilarious. Keep going. Thanks. I appreciate it. That's good. But uh, I do appreciate Andy's ability to to sneak through the woods, but in a athletic and um, methodical way. Yeah. And I just find it fun to see her get in there and work them out. Um, can you describe? You know, it sounds like you kind of described it, but like, do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down on Andy and like, yes. Yeah. You are you, do you, is that something that you worked on with your dog, Nick? Like, is that something that's where I was going to go? Because I've, I've won, I've wondered that myself, like, um, you know, is there, is there something that I've done to, to facilitate this? And I would say effectively, no, like, I, I don't think I had much to do with it other than one thing, which may very well could be it. And that is living here, I run in the woods with my dogs from day one, you know, there we're in the woods, um, like not, not 365 days a year, but 300 days. I mean, every day, like six, seven days a week, we're going for a run in the woods and there's not, we are in cover that they could find a grouse. Typically when we're doing our exercise runs like this time of year, I saw grouse tracks today. Um, we don't get into a lot of wild birds on our regular exercise runs, but I wonder if, having dogs run through cover and run through woody, woody dense cover from a very early age could facilitate, um, that sort of style of running. And I couldn't tell you that yes or no, that is the answer. Like it would be, do you, what if you raise the same dog on the prairie and then bring it to the grouse woods? Does it then all of a sudden start crashing through the grouse woods? I don't know the answer because I don't have the comparison. I just know that my dogs run in the woods almost on a daily basis and have done so from a very young age. 
And I, I have to believe that that somewhat contributes to, to their ability to move through cover in an efficient way, if that makes sense. I, I, I think that that can't hurt. They right. maneuver it, right? Yeah. It, it's like running landmarks and watermarks and doing all the retriever stuff. It, the more they do it, the better they get at maneuvering the situations and being efficient in it and burning less calories to do it. But I'm also wondering if it's personality. Is it nature then, versus nurture? And then because it's a setter, like all the short hairs, and I'm, I know you're going to, we all are going to get backlash on this. And no, my short hair is freaking smooth in the woods. Maybe the ones I hunt with crash through the woods. Yeah. They're not that disruptive at all. Um, but they're, they're pile. They're, it's like bull in a China shop versus Andy is smooth as silk through it and like silent. Um, and I gotta imagine that helps finding grouse and not busting them early. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think from uh to varying degrees, like there, there would be a, you know, I always sort of think of like a grouse, whether it's going to hold or not is like, there's this sort of pressure meter, you know, and, and how much pressure is being put on that, on that bird. Whereas if a dog sort of, again, is swiftly moving through the woods, not crashing through the woods and comes up on a grouse real quick. And all of a sudden is locked up on it. Uh, the grouse's pressure meter hasn't gone through the roof where he's like, I'm, done i'm getting out of here right versus the dog that comes crashing through the woods and all of a sudden is five yards from the grouse um i think a lot of that is hard to it's hard to really say like um in in any like definitive answer you know one or the other because it's just like every wild bird contact is different and Mm um you have the luxury of like hunting with your own dog so you see them and you learn how to read your own dogs and you kind of get an idea of what's going on but um to your point that you made earlier, uh, Rose, I feel like she has that kind of sneaky, stealthy ability in the grouse woods. And that's one thing I've really come to appreciate about the way she goes about it. And it's not so much on the first contact, it's the second contact in her ability to relocate and stay with grouse that are moving. Cause we all know that grouse run and they move. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where Rose has, uh, again, one of the things that I really love about her is she has, she has a proven ability to track and relocate grouse and stick with them until I can eventually, and again, doesn't work all the time, but, um, mm-hmm. she's doing her damnedest to, to get that bird stopped and held up to where I can finally get into position and maybe get a flush and maybe get a shot. Um, cool. she's got, she's got a knack when it comes to that. And it's, it's really fun to watch. I will say that. What are, what are some tips and tricks you would give to a grouse hunter on getting into position to put yourself in a better uh, opportunity to get that bird. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say better position, but I just said position. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. So, so, so that is, uh, that's, that's kind of the name of the game when it comes to grouse hunting over pointing dogs is it's one thing to get a bird pointed, but that is still a long ways from getting a look at a, at a bird. And the, the method that I have have the most success with, or is kind of like the underlying um, it's what I'm trying to do on every point is to, and Lars touched on this too, and uh, he hunts with flushing dogs because flushing dogs, they sort of force grouse out of cover and 
in doing so, I haven't hunted over a lot of flushers, but I sort of envision this and I would like to, but they can force grouse out of cover. And I feel like they can force a grouse into doing something it maybe doesn't want to do, which maybe mm-hmm. gives you the shooter a better opportunity. So to kind of counteract some of um, t- the flip side of that, I'll rewind the pointing dog, pointing dog comes in points at grouse. Let's say I'm a hundred yards away. I'm making my, my way in. Meanwhile, this grouse has all this time to kind of like, all right, I got a dog over here. Um, he's assessing his surrounding. He's, you know, I assume like the grouse has some instincts as to where he wants to go, how he's going to escape. And mm-hmm. he's got all that time to sort of think and plan to the extent that a rough grouse can, um, which, you know, they've got some ability to escape. They, they do that on a daily basis. And so when you come up as the, as the hunter, it's like, what can I do to better my odds? And what I'm trying to do is, I think of it like going back to that pressure thing. The dog is one point of pressure on the bird. And if, if I come up right behind my dog and walk right up past the dog's flank and the dog's nose, we've got basically a single point of pressure on that grouse. And that grouse has 300 and however many degrees that he can escape, or at least, you know, 180 that way. I feel like that that puts the ball or that puts the advantage for the grouse. He's got more room and more, more ways to escape. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I can make a loop around the dog, if I can get eyes on my dog, which is always what I'm trying to do. If I can get eyes on the dog and gather some information as to which way the dog is oriented, maybe which way I feel the breeze coming in, which is not always uh, relevant in the grouse woods, but I'm trying to assess where I think the bird is. And if I can do that, to the best of my ability, I'm trying to make some kind of a loop around the dog and the bird. And usually it's a struggle to, it's a struggle to go wide enough around the dog. The dog's like, for me, it's like a tractor beam. Like I just want to go into the dog. So I'm always fighting that urge to kind of go right into the point. But over time I've gotten better at it and some scenarios set up better than others. Um, But if in an ideal scenario, if I can get around the dog and get it to where the bird is trapped between the dog and myself, we've now got two points of pressure on the grouse and we've just limited the, mm-hmm. the places where the grouse can comfortably escape. I do feel like I have done that enough and I've seen it enough at this point to know that if you're successful in doing that, your odds of getting a grouse that flushes higher and into an area that is going to give you a better shot, your, your odds will increase if you can apply pressure from more than one angle. That's why if you got one dog on point and two hunting buddies and you can flank, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you, you both might not get a look, but one guy might get a really good look because again, you're applying that pressure from multiple angles on the bird. So that's, that's kind of the main method that I try to employ on every, every point. If I can. That's super smart and makes complete sense. And We also say it from a training perspective. I don't want to walk behind that dog because it's going to push the dog forward. Correct. You you always kind of come in from the side. And, and I guess, can you explain, hang on, can can you, before you move further, can you explain why you walk to the side of the dog when you're training? Our physical, yeah, our physical presence on the dog is going to change the dog's behavior right so they're focused in on their point and if i come up behind the dog it's going to take their focus on it could take their focus off of what they're nosing you know what they're smelling what they're huffing in the air 
it's going to take their focus off of that. Two, when I move in on a dog, it pushes. So if I'm, you know, the way I equate it to people, and this has more to do with retrievers, but if you just point it in, put it in the pointing dog world, if I walk at you, really at you, Nick, you're going to be like, hey, and you're going to lean back, right? You're going to, you're going to give me space because I'm taking your space. It's kind of the same idea as if I come behind you, you're going to move out of my way. You're going to step aside. You're going to step forward. You're going to say, I'm not sure about this. So you're doing the same thing. If I'm pushing behind a dog coming straight behind them, that dog inevitably is, even if they're super steady, they may not move, but they're going to be thinking about it. So if you give them a wide berth and come around, you're going to keep staunchness on the point. You're going to keep the style up and you're going to keep their focus on the task at hand, which is that bird is over there. Um, mind you, I'm not a pointing dog trainer. I've just dabbled in the dark arts of pointing dogs enough to (laughs) to know. You've read it. You've read enough dog behavior to pick up on that too. And I, and I think it's, uh, again, just a, like, it's, it's more speculation on my part, but, um, you, you see it like more in a younger dog, you know, a younger dog sure. that doesn't know the game as much. You come up right behind them that they're the chances that they're going to want to creep or move forward a little bit of competitive nature. They want to be in the lead. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's where you start to see that come out. Whereas the flip side is if you, if you circle around it and the dog can see you, they can kind of see the whole situation and they don't have the same desire to move and get ahead or anything. They just kind of sit back and watch, which is exactly what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a great point too. So yeah, that's what I would prefer to do. But then as far as the shooting goes, at least Nick, and, and I would like your opinion on this. When I'm coming in on a point, I just got the GPS collar to, to say like 70 yards this way. That's where she is. So I will maneuver around like you do, but maybe not take enough wide berth because you're 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 going through the tangles, and you're you're just like literally trying your damnedest to get there. And you come up, then as soon as I locate my dog visually, like hey, you're twenty yards, right, or thirty yards. I'm visually looking at exits that the bird could go and I'm typically wrong. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Right. I'm typically wrong, but I'm looking like, dude, that is more open. It's going to bust up and go that way. Is that a thought a grouse has from your experience? Are they going to the opening or are they going, you know, put trees between you and them? Um, I always thought that they would, if I were a bird, I wouldn't want to get tangled up. I'd want quickest escape route possible. Yep. What do you, What do you think? Yeah, I I I do think that they are they they're not trying to fly through stuff that's going to throw them off. Um, one thing that's interesting, I've in recent years I've started wearing a GoPro, and and so I've got a lot of grouse flushes and stuff on camera. And as I watch some of this back in slow motion, like I've seen. I'll see birds fly through like hazel brush and twigs and stuff that you don't perceive that when you're, you got a loaded gun and you're bearing down on it and you're, you know, you got tunnel vision at that point, but when you can watch some of this stuff in hindsight on the GoPro, it's really cool because you will see girls fly through stuff that like, it doesn't even phase them. I mean, clearly they've got an ability for doing that, but I, I tend to agree with you that I, 
I have those thoughts where like, you know, a lot, it happens enough where a grouse ends up, it puts a tree between you and it. Now, did it do mm. that intentionally? Or is that just the cover getting in, a, in the way of the escape? I, I tend to agree with you in that I think the grouse's main goal is to get out of there as fast as possible. And they're not necessarily trying to trick you by getting in front of something. It, it happens mm. plenty because of the nature of the cover that they live in. Uh, but I, I think they're just, they're looking for the quickest way out of there at that point. And, you know, in, in theory, they've been, they've been sitting there while this dog is on point and I walked all the way in and they're, they reach a point where they, I'm done with this. I'm getting out of here. And right. I think if they've got a route where they can, they can stay low and not go high, they, that's what they'll do. I mean, rough mm-hmm. girls are known for that. And that makes it really hard to shoot them. Um, if you can get them to go high by doing some of those things to kind of put the odds in your favor to pop the bird up, um, that certainly improves your odds as the shooter. But at the end of the day, it's an, it's an unpredictable bird. And the minute you think you, you've got to, you got to figure it out, you know, they'll do something different. And that's honestly what makes it what it is. That's what makes, that's it, what makes it special. Yeah. yeah. That's what makes it special for sure. Um, the last kind of question and segment I'd like to touch on is woodsmanship. And yes, before we go to that, the next part, um, I would like to kind of circle back to something that you said, and mm-hmm. that was that when you're, when you're walking in on a point, you're looking at stuff where you think the grouse is going to be right. I do the same thing. And, and I, I feel like I've read a lot in like sort of wing shooting and stuff. When you're approaching point, don't look at the ground. Don't try to spot the bird on the ground. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily sit here and debate that. Uh, but for me, when I was growing up hunting without a dog, I refer to myself as a partridge hunter as that's what I was. I, it was just me. And all I had were my six senses or five senses. And I don't have a sixth sense, but the five <laughs> senses. And for me, it was like, I needed every advantage I could get. So I, it, for me, it was a game to try to spot a grouse on the ground before it took off. And if I spotted it on the ground before it took off, I was shooting it. And, and that's, <laughs> that's what I did when, when I grew up. I mean, I shot grouse on a log in a tree, whatever. As I look back on that, like, I just, I don't have any interest in doing that anymore now with my dogs. And like, I just, I love wing shooting for grouse, but at the time, um, you know, it made you back, better though. You it, know, it made it, you better in the woods. It did. It did give me give me a a, a knack or a skill set or whatever you want to call it for spotting these birds on the ground. And again, like I said, I kind of gamified it. And to this day, I cannot. I mean, I just love doing it. So, like, if I have a dog on point when I'm walking in, I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking for deadfalls. I am. I am voraciously scanning the ground, trying to spot the grouse before it takes off. And what people will say is, if you see the grouse on the ground, you kind of have too much time to think about it and you are inevitably going to miss, which does happen to me from time to time. But the the reverse is also true. I've spotted plenty of grouse on the ground and have made that shot. And it comes down to, to make a good shot, you need a strong visual connection on the bird, which is what Lars said. So some, some kind, sometimes it just works out where I spot the grouse on the ground and that bird takes off and I've got a deadlock on it from the time it, it takes to wing by the time it takes me to get on it and shoot it, I've never lost visual on the bird. And that's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. No. Um, so I, I'm the same way as you. And again, I, a lot of times I guess like, Oh, there's a deadfall. That's where I think the bird is. And sure enough, he gets up over here and I don't, and I don't get a look, but I'm, I'm always trying. And that's part of like my, 
my thinking brain when I'm doing that kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm trying to find the bird. That's super cool. And I think a great piece of advice, I'm typically like, I feel like a hawk where it's like, I'm trying to just see every peripheral vision. I'm trying to have all my senses. I'm trying to have everything where it's like, as far as the eye can see that everything is wide open and ready because it could be over here and then you're bang. Um, because they're so damn unpredictable. Yes. Um, one other thing I will, this is another tip I thought of at at that point. So, so this is a common sort of mistake that you'll see people make that don't, it's maybe their first grouse or whatever that they're just, you see people do it a lot. You got a dog on point, you walk up sort of in the vicinity of the dog and then you stop to try to kind of assess the situation Think, All right, what's going to happen next? A lot of times that's the opportunity that the bird takes off because they get unsettled when like, if you're walking along, if you're walking along at a steady pace and you never stop, you might walk right by a grouse and they'll never move. They'll just stop, sit there and watch you walk by. But if you walk within the vicinity of a grouse and then you stop, it's pretty well known that that sort of uh, pause or silence will then sort of unsettle the grouse into taking off because they don't exactly know what you're going to do at that point. Mm-hmm. So the point of that is walking to the vicinity of the dog and stopping is not necessarily a bad thing, but if you are going to stop, you want to make sure you are ahead of the dog or if you did what we talked about earlier and circled around, don't stop until you are in a place where you've got the ability to move and shoot and not get your last two inches of barrel hung up on an oak tree, right? <laughs> don't, don't stop unless you are going to stop in a spot where you can get a shot off would be yeah. the, the main takeaway there. Um, great advice. I'm going to parlay this, segue this into woodsmanship. When you're walking through the woods with your dog, how do you walk? Are you brisk? Are you slow? Are you looking and like, like almost silently stalking a deer? You know, what is your pace? Uh, I'll let you go with that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll double back. Okay. Yeah. I would say that with my dog, when I, when I used to hunt without dogs, the name of the game was going slow. And that kind of goes back to what I was getting at. The slower you move through the woods, the more opportunity you're going to have to potentially unsettle a grouse and make it make the first move, whether that is maybe making a cluck sound, maybe taking a couple of steps to the in through the leaves to kind of give away its position, or maybe just taking off and flying versus walking at a very steady pace. And if you, again, don't have a dog on the ground, I can't imagine how many grouse I walked by even then, even when I was trying to walk slow, because that's just one of their innate abilities, survival instincts to, to let predators walk by and just move through the area. And we don't have a nose. We can't smell them, that sort of thing. So now hunting primarily with bird dogs, or I should say always hunting with bird dogs, I I have a tendency to probably walk faster than I should. And I say that it's like, should, you know, who, who's telling me how fast I should walk or, or should I not? The reason I'm walking fast is because I just freaking love being in the grouse woods and I love going for big hikes and I love seeing the cover in the country. So mm-hmm. my dogs are hunting, they're doing their thing. They're sticking with me. And I know in the back of my mind that, that hopefully they're going to point a bird. 
while they're doing that, I'm just kind of on my own little adventure walk and I'm just scanning and looking, I'm observing some of it for fun. I'm also, I'm mainly looking at like, Oh, this looks like grouse cover. There's some grouse, but there's some hazel brush. There's some thorn apples. And, you know, we, we can talk about some of this stuff, but I'm like hundred percent observation mode. And the other thing that I do, which not everybody does, and it's just kind of like how you want to go about it is I'm kind of like maintaining as much readiness as possible because mm-hmm. if my dog's 60 yards over to the right and I foot flush a grouse, if I get a shot at it, I'm probably taking a shot. Hell um, yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> what? It, That's a it question? <laughs> for, some, for some people, I mean, some people, they only want to shoot, they only want to shoot birds that their dog points, which to each their own right um at the end of the day i'm a i'm a bird hunter first and i now do it with dogs and the dogs have changed grouse hunting for me forever and i I don't see myself going back but uh i'm still a a a grouse hunter partridge hunter at heart and so like i'm i'm looking for every opportunity i can get and part of that is again looking at deadfalls looking at what i'm seeing on the ground observing stuff and so to kind of answer your question about pace I do think there's something to be said about um, walking at a slow enough pace to allow your dogs to cover ground. I think uh, depending on what kind of dog you have, how it works to cover and its range, um, we have a, we have a tendency to, we could very easily push our dogs through a lot of cover to get over the next hill, knowing full well that if my dog casts out a hundred yards this way and I cover you know, 50 to 60 yards by the time that dog checks back in, there's probably a patch of cover over here that maybe wasn't hit. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a balancing act of what's my assessment of the cover around me? How well do I think my dogs have covered? Is there an objective that I want to hit? Or am I just strolling to try to get to the next edge or the next seam in the cover, that kind of thing. So (laughs) it's a, it's a give and take, I guess, if that makes sense. But um, I probably, on any given day, I'm probably maybe walking a little quick, but I just like walking through the woods. Yeah, I dig it. Do you hunt on a, Do you hunt your dogs alone, just you and your dogs, or do you hunt with a party? And does that change your style of how you maneuver the woods? Yeah, That's a good I, I would question. Say, yeah, very, very good question. I would say... At the end of the day, if you wrap up my whole season, um, at least like at this point in my life, I end up probably hunting uh, a pretty high percentage of just me and my dogs. And and for me, that is me and one dog on the ground, one dog in the truck. I'm When I got my second dog, I had this, I always thought I would, there would be times where I would hunt them both at the same time. But the way it has played out in reality is that I'm usually... I'm hunting one dog and I'm resting the other dog to try to maximize my dog power. So I'd rather take Hartley for an hour run over here and then go to a new spot and take and take Rose for a hunt in another mm-hmm. spot. That gives me the chance to hunt two different spots, see more territory at, rather than burn up all my dog power in one spot. So that's how I do it. And for mo- for the most part, I do hunt a lot where it's just myself. Now, that aside... I certainly love the, you know, the October is kind of the month where I'm doing some grouse camps. I'm getting together with friends and I do plenty of hunting with other people, 
Um, ideally that's again, maybe two guys and one dog, maybe two guys, two dogs. For me, I, I kind of like the simplicity of, of having one dog on the ground and it's just, it's easier to, it's easier to kind of keep everybody moving in the same direction. Um, I've been on plenty of hunts where you got two or three guys, maybe two or three dogs, and that can work, but it can also, it can also turn into chaos pretty quick. If you get a dog on point a hundred yards over here, another dog on point a hundred yards over that way. And then we're yelling and talking in the woods and the more stimulus you got out there, the, my enjoyment level starts to go down. So there's kind of like nothing, nothing better than like, I cut one dog loose and it's just me out there. And like, other than the incessant conversation going on in my mm -hmm. head, there's mm -hmm. literally nothing, nothing being said. My dog is maintaining visual contact with me, uh, you know, intermittently as it, as it moves through the cover, but we're just like, we're like one team moving through the woods and I don't have to say anything. I mean, that's, that's awesome. like, that's like the best in my opinion. That is, I, I love hunting with Kevin. Uh, I have another buddy, Nick, who I grouse hunt with a, a lot. Actually, he and I grouse hunt together a lot and we'll spread out. So you're not putting two dogs and two dudes in one cover that's tight because we feel like we're, we're not covering ground efficiently and yeah. we're higher likelihood of spooking birds. Correct. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But I wondered if you had a tactic of like two guys and two dogs, like how do you, if you're in charge of the group, how do you go? Hey man, I've been here before. I know the terrain. You go this way, you go this way, or let's stay a hundred yards apart. Or how do you work it to be the yeah. most successful possible? Yeah, I, I would say that's that's somewhat dependent on again the the person you're hunting with. Do they know the area like you do, or do they know their way around the woods to the extent where we can pull up on X maps and say, you know, here's the here's the cover that we're going to look. I'm going to swing out around, kind of generally work this edge. You swing out here. We'll meet in the back. We'll assess game plan, and then we'll come up with a plan to make it back to the truck. If we both have a dog, we might do something like that. Um, I I do certainly enjoy hunting with two hunters and one dog. Um, and, and that's just fun because then you got two people that can share in the experience. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's double the fun, right? Like you get, you get a point in the bird contact, you were both there to see it. Maybe your buddy shoots yeah. a bird over your dog. I mean, that kind of stuff is irreplaceable too. So I, I like a healthy balance of that throughout the season. Um, and so if it's, again, if it's one dog, two hunters were obviously hunting together at that point. If it's, if it's two hunters and two dogs, um, I, I was, I wasn't always this way, but more and more, I'd probably be more like, let's sort of hunt this cover to get, you know, separately, but together. And we'll mm -hmm. meet back at the truck at the same time and we'll break everything down together. I mean, that's, that's yeah. fun too, but that's kind of how we do it with the two dogs, two dudes is you just spread out enough where you're still together, but you're not encroaching and then we'll like halfway through that cover we'll maybe sync up or we have like a little whistle you know it's like yeah. the mocking jay like right we just mocking yeah. jay each other um katniss everdeen anybody yes, uh, yes yes yeah i couldn't do that right now my lips are too dry but <laughs> <laughs> i can hear it in my head thank you so it it shouldn't alarm anything else but it's letting him know like hey we're on point over here and yeah. and come on by 
Um, and it's kind of fun doing stuff like that. I, I really yes. love it. And we have uh, an ability to talk to each other in the woods without talking. That it just comes with time. Yes. Um, but let's talk. So I appreciate your your breakdown of that because I do find it difficult when you add more people, add more dogs, add more, you just, you're just pushing woods and there's an inverse relationship in sort of like my enjoyment level and the amount of activity and commotion you got going on in the woods, right? As one increases, the other decreases. Um, Generally speaking, there's ways, there's ways to do it um, that kind of, keep the enjoyment level up there, which you've hit on. Um, but the other, one of the other cool things that we have today is the technology, whether it's Onyx maps, if, you know, if you know how to pull up the map, you can kind of really assess the cover and get a bird's eye view of like, all right, you're going to work this. I'm going to work that. We can kind of meet here and, and keep in touch. And we maybe even hear our dogs bells in the woods and that kind of thing. Maybe you hear a shot, that sort of thing. The other thing is, um, a lot of the people that I hunt with have Garmin GPS callers and the technology you have there to sort of track your buddy's location, track your dog's location. That's a nice way to keep in contact with people without actually having to be in contact with them. Um, So those are just little things that can, that can help those kind of situations I've found. That's a good tip. All right. So you're in Minnesota. I'm in New York. Um, we went to Kevin and I went to Michigan this year to the UP. Yeah. Awesome experience. We didn't move as many grouse as the allure speaks of, if you will. Well, right? you had built up in your mind. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's it, <laughs> yep. you're you're exactly right. We had built it up in our mind, like, boy, I hope we brought enough shells. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Um drive 15 hours and we had we really did have a blast good amount of woodcock encounters and shots and birds taken and and kevin's i would say kevin's dog light bulb moments for her like really turned it on well it was fun yeah Yeah. she was dabbling in in the grouse woods she hadn't had enough bird contacts and i felt like that trip you could see a switch flip for her great experience but the grouse just weren't. And so we were like, we were on on X, we were on the cuts, we were on the years, we were on yeah. habitat, we were on food. And we're, we, by the third day of our hunt, we had started to increase our woodsmanship and say, we flushed grouse in this area. Mm-hmm. What is around us? And then go looking for that. And then you, we'd ended up towards the third day. We had way more flushes than the first day. But from a New Yorker going to Michigan, the covers were just different. It doesn't look the same. Um, The concepts maybe might have been sort of similar in the end, but like the the foliage isn't the same. And I'm not like you. What I'm impressed by you, Nick, is like you're. That is a suffering soccer tash yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a suffering soccer tash you're like dang that's a and, yeah. I, and and i i can visualize and say i know what that is because i've seen it before i don't know what the hell it is but yeah. i flush grouse in that thingy um so i'm impressed by that and what makes you tick in terms of increasing your woodsmanship and then can you part 
take take a piece of information and share with everybody on how to be better at it and what they should be looking for in the Northwoods? Yeah. So great question. And I will say, admittedly, like that level of sort of paying attention to things is a more, it's more recent for me. Um, going back to some of those days when I mentioned when I was hunting younger, I was much more of that mindset where I got to know what grouse cover was simply by just doing it over and over again, flushing grouse in areas where you just get a feel for, okay, this is grousey. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I now know, like I was looking at hazel brush. I was looking at aspen trees. I was looking at alders. I was looking at spruce trees and cedars, but I didn't label it in my head that way. Like I did last fall when I was hunting with a dare and we did the video on it. And, Mm -hmm. and that, that has come, come later for me is just sort of as I dive deeper and deeper into this. And obviously I love, I love grouse hunting. And so I'm, I'm always looking for ways to kind of dive deeper and, and squeeze more juice out of that, out of that orange, um, so to speak. And so, but I have found like, I think there's a takeaway there where you can take it as far as you want. Um, but we now have, again, going back to some of this technology, the tools, this, this was the first year that I started using like plant identification apps to start like double checking some of the things. And I had, you know, I put together the pieces and like, I knew what hazel brush was and I've learned this stuff over the years, but I find that a tool like that, where you can in the moment where, Hey, I just flushed a grouse. He's right next to this clump of stuff. I can pull out the app. I can, I can get a data point on it. Um, when you use that stuff enough, you get a confidence level that, um, you, you start to put those puzzle pieces together a little bit quicker, I think. So I think you can really, you can shorten the learning curve by paying attention to that stuff if you want to. And Mm -hmm. exactly like what you're saying, if there's anything I've learned is that as much as rough grouse hunting is rough grouse hunting, it can vary a ton by going from region to region. Um, when I, when I used to hunt, it was a very small area that I used to kind of go to over and over again. More recently in the last decade or so, I hunt a lot of different areas within Minnesota and Wisconsin, and I've been over to Michigan as well. And I can see the similarities and I can see, you know, some of those core principles like stem density and Mm -hmm. edges and swamps and some of the features that I'm looking for. I can kind of go to a new area and start to identify that stuff quicker than I, than I would have been able to 10, 15 years ago. But there's, there's just, I don't think there's, there's quite a replacement for getting to know an area and its subtle nuances by that being your home turf, so to speak, and hunting that over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. And it's, it's kind of just the nature of the beast. Like we all have limited time. You can, you you guys go to Michigan, you can't be over there for two months. You're there for a week. Um, So like what, what you described was kind of, it, it can be, you can be on the struggle bus on day one or two. But at the end of the trip, that story arc that you painted where by day three, you're starting to flush birds. I mean, that's, that's hunting to me. That's, that's paying attention, paying attention to your surroundings, using your power of observation, putting the puzzle pieces together and finding success and knowing that tomorrow is not always going to be like today, but at the end of the day, that is bird hunting and hunting really in its, in its purest form. So it's part of the allure. It's part of the draw. Um, but it's, it's definitely, uh, there's a way to approach it and a way to think about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think you hit the nail on the head with that too. It's, it's the allure. It's what keeps us coming back for more. It keeps us improving 
Yeah. I also think like you said, when you were growing up grouse hunting, there was like a sixth sense, six sense. Now I'm yeah, yeah. That's a tough my, one. That's a tough one. <laughs> six cents uh, of you're gonna hurt yourself. I know, bud. It's been a long day, but um, you start to just feel like, man, yes, just feels like a grouse would be in here, and then bang, they flush like under your foot, or you know, up around the corner here comes bang, dog locks up on point. You do get that six cents of grousiness but then to take it a step further and improve your ability to say it's because of hazel brush yes. or the there's i'm starting to see more cherries and yep. all these different things and it's like i just feel good about this spot yep. um our, our brains are our brains are hardwired for pattern recognition and that's mm-hmm. like i think you can put some logic to that because that's i have the same feeling it's like a, it's it's like a i would just say that looks grousy you know and i still mm-hmm. say that in my head all the time and it's it's your brain recognizing the pattern in the cover and the structural diversity and the density and everything it recognizes that you flush birds there before so you 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 know the neurons light up and and that's what it is but i've now begun to you know sort of label the pieces of that puzzle that sort of make it what it is and that mm-hmm. adds like it's like another layer of enjoyment for me but also uh, I do think it's sort of like, um, sort got to help your numbers it, go up. It's, well, yeah, it's, it supports your, your knowledge of, of the yeah. cover and what you're looking at. Yeah. And it's, it's the, part of the foundation. Yeah. The probability of success for you and your dogs being in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. goes way up Indeed. when you're more educated. Yeah. Um, oh man, I had a good one. Dang. All right. I'll let it slide because this this won't be the end and i know it's been a long show for you and you've got kids and a wife and kevin's got a kid and a wife so i'm going to let it i'm going to let it roll for the next episode yeah. nick i appreciate you being on here again man i could talk about grouse hunting and just listen to you and i talk about retrievers and duck hunting a lot this is like my my outlet to the dogs and and still be in the woods and so this is like a passion project for me to just enjoy the grouse talk. So thank you. Thank you for passing on your knowledge. Tell me, uh, tell me where, or tell them where they can find you and the up and gun company. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. It was, uh, it was my pleasure as, uh, as you can probably tell, I love talking about this stuff and I will commend you. You're asking great questions and for, for being something that you're, uh, you're getting deeper into your, uh, you're on a good path. And, uh, it was fun talking to you about it. Uh, especially this time of year, March, you know, we got a long time to look ahead to next fall, but, uh, it's going to always, we can always talk about grouse hunting. So it's a blast. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate that birdshot podcast. You can find it about anywhere you can listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple, that sort of thing. I do have a website. There's not much up there other than new episode posts and stuff, but, uh, birdshot podcast, birdshot podcast on Instagram. I do have a personal page on there, um, at NI Larson 13, and I can send you guys some links to that stuff, but, uh, uplandguncompany.com. We talked plenty about the shotguns. That's if anybody's interested or, uh, wants to learn more about it, definitely go to uplandguncompany.com. You can play around there, look at the different models of shotguns we have, uh, play around with the builder. We got a YouTube channel. We did some videos, um, there, there's not a ton there, but there is a cool video on gun fitting that we did with Dell Whitman last summer. Mm-hmm. So if that, uh, if that conversation sparked any interest from anybody, I would encourage you to check out the Upland gun company, YouTube page and yeah, awesome. go have a look. Yeah. We'll drop the links 
in the description below for all these things, including the gun fitting YouTube link. I think that will spur a lot of people to learn more about it. So for sure, Nick, thank you so much for joining tonight, man. It's a pleasure to see your face. It's a pleasure to talk grouse hunting and guns and dogs with you. So stay well, my friend. And maybe one of these days we'll get in the grouse woods and I, I will enjoy working or, you know, watching your dogs work and, and hunting with you, buddy. Let's make it happen, boys. Right back at you. Enjoyed it very much as well. And we'll, we'll keep in touch. Sounds good. Have a great one. You too. See you, boys. Thank you. Hey, patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters is a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in, let's go join the community. We appreciate it and we'll see you there. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.